0: blog talk radio natural running network we are brought to you by medhab makers of rpm squared an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes my name is richard diaz i am your host are you a runner do you love to get out and challenge yourself running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing well, sit tight, because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I have the great fortune of being with Mark Johnson. He is the author of Spitting in the Soup, which is, as the title entails, the inside the dirty game of doping in sport. I got a copy of this book a while back and started reading it, and I was really fascinated with the the history of doping in sport and I had no idea, I'm going to be very honest, I had no idea where all this came about. You know, we're all familiar with, obviously, the, uh, the whole thing with Lance Armstrong and, and the <laughs> baseball players that left and right getting busted for the performance-enhancing drugs. But I had no idea where all this kind of manifested. And I have Mark with me here to shed some light on all of it. And Mark, thanks a lot for taking the time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Glad we can talk about this.
0: So let, let's kind of start in the beginning where you talk about the history of doping in sport. And can you start to paint this picture? Because clearly you, you have a better handle on this than I do.
1: Well, I think for someone in the year 2016 looking at doping in sport, our natural assumption is that doping is both morally wrong and physically destructive. That's sort of our de facto starting point for, for evaluating the role of drugs in sports. But that's a relatively new framework for assessing drugs in sport because professional sports have been around for about 150 years now. Professional sports are a child of the industrial revolution. Once you had enough people piling into big cities to create demand for sporting spectacles, then event promoters could put to start putting together soccer games in Europe, uh, six-day races in the United States and in Europe, and charge admittance to watch professionals ply their trade, whether it be in track and field, cycling, soccer. And those professionals turn to drugs in order to, to do their tasks. So a six-day racer, for instance, is a guy who's paid to ride his bike around in circles in a velodrome in a place like Madison Square Garden for six days. And the idea that that athlete would not turn to stimulants, uh, whether it be strychnine, cocaine, later in the 1930s, amphetamines, uh, would be kind of mind blowing to the contemporary fans because, of course, they're going to turn to modern technology and pharmace- pharmaceuticals to do their trade. It was just part of sports medicine. And that really, that non judgmental attitude persisted all the way up until the 1960s for almost 100 years. And then in the 1960s, you started to have the seeds, the genesis of the anti-doping infrastructure and bureaucracy and police force that we take for granted today. But it really wasn't until the 1960s that that started to grow. And the United States is very latecomer to the game because we didn't even create an anti-doping agency until the year 2000. So up until the 21st century, the United States really didn't have that much interest in anti-doping, and that's illustrated by
0: the fact that we didn't have an anti-doping agency to police our athletes. If you could kind of reel back a little bit, and one of the things that I found in the book that I I thought was really fascinating is the, I guess it's the first record of someone actually using some performance-enhancing drug, I guess for lack of a better term, was during the, the, the marathon you had written in, what was it, 1928? That
1: was actually in, in 1904, but oh, so that was a, a runner, uh, Thomas Hicks, who was a British runner but was racing for the Americans, That it was in the marathon in St. Louis, Missouri, and he won the race, and after the race, his doctor, uh, Charles Lucas, um, wrote that Hicks could not have won the race without the, the assistance of drugs, and he said basically drugs And athleticism are a marvelous thing, and and it's a praiseworthy combination. And really, at the time, it was seen as uh, an expression of American ingenuity and fearlessness and Americans' ability to to turn to modern technology in order to push the boundaries of of human performance. And so, again, in, in 1904, the fact that this runner, Hicks, he used strychnine, and brandy, those were the main two drugs that he was using in order to finish the race, Um, it was something that was seen as as something that was praiseworthy as opposed to something that would be condemned today. So that's at the turn of the century, and again, that really persisted all the way up until the 1960s, and only in the 1960s did attitudes start to change toward doping in sports. There's a couple of reasons why they changed in the nineteen sixties one there was a greater awareness in the medical community of the dangers of amphetamine addictions. And amphetamines were really a go to sport go to drug for endurance athletes, primarily cyclists, because while there's not a lot of evidence that amphetamines can give you a physiological boost boost, there is a lot of evidence that they give you a mental boost, a sense of greater courage, fearlessness, and also it does dull pain. So They were very common, but then as the medical community started to see that more and more people were becoming addicted to amphetamines, they started to have greater concerns about amphetamine use at society at large, but also uh, among sports people. So France and Belgium were the first two countries to actually criminalize doping, and that was in 1965. So along with the medical concerns, there was also greater anxieties about countercultural drug use. So my book, I go back and looked at some of the legislative testimony in the the 1960s in California, because as uh, politicians were becoming concerned about countercultural drug use, hippie smoking pot, they started to say, well, you know, these college and high school athletes have been using amphetamines and steroids. Maybe we should be concerned about they're using drugs as well, because even though these are examples of sort of. The the moral paragons in American society maybe their use of drugs could have a degrading effect, corrosive effect on their morality, just as politicians' concern was that drugs were degrading the morality of of pot smoking hippies. So that was another the factor that sort of snowballed with into the anti doping industry that that we have today.
0: Huh. Now, I was reading, and I I thought it was pretty fascinating that I guess is post-world War where you know Germany was basically divided and the East Germans were trying to create this super race of athletes and they were not only encouraging but mandating the use of drugs in order for their athletes to be superior so that they could basically show themselves as a superior race can you kind of shed some light on that
1: yeah so the, the Cold War was really a greater the greatest accelerator of doping and the understanding of the effects of doping on sports that we've ever seen. Up until the Cold War, not up and really until the East Germans uh, created a, a state-run, state-financed, and state-managed doping program, doping was kind of an ad hoc activity where you might have a trainer who usually wasn't a medically trained, or you had have athletes self-administering themselves. But it was just sort of one off. Uh, People would learn how to dope through their colleagues. But during the Cold War, East Germany saw the Olympics as a way to resurrect its damaged psyche and damaged uh, sense of self-worth. Because on one hand, it was monumentally embarrassed and ashamed because it had lost World War II and also was the author of the Holocaust. At the same time, East Germany was an occupied state, occupied by the Russians. And so the Olympics became a way for East Germany to uh, strut its independence, both in the face of the hated capitalist states, but also the hated Russians. And they saw a real opportunity to distinguish themselves from americans because americans systematically denied women the ability to compete until title nine no the first woman I, I talked about the first woman who tried to run boston and she she was a college athlete she told her at her college uh track coach she wanted to run the boston marathon and he said dames can't run boston and she was physically pulled from from the race So the East Germans saw the fact that the Americans denied women the ability to train like their male uh, colleagues as an opportunity, particularly when you applied anabolic steroids to women because they're naturally lower testosterone level, you're going to see a higher return in terms of performance enhancement. So the East Germans were administering two million doses of anabolic steroids per year to their athletes. Um, they were exquisitely documenting the effects of these drugs. They had thousands of doctors and trainers administering these drugs, and they also had massive numbers of stasi agents making sure that if any doctor started to have moral qualms about the damaging effects of these massive administrations of steroids, that they would stay in line because the alternative was go to a prison camp so it really worked, too, because of the 72 Olympics, 76 Olympics in Montreal, the East Germans completely clobbered the Americans, and it was quite embarrassing to us. And so in, in uh, 1978, the Americans responded by creating the Amateur Sports Act, which really turned our attention away from uh, presidential and congressional focus on sporting or fitness for the masses to uh, sporting excellence on the Olympic playing field. And that's where we created the U.S. Olympic Committee as the single-handed manager of all Olympic sporting bodies in the United States because it was expressly a response to the fact that we were getting clobbered by the communists who were more often than not using drugs to help fuel their success. Now, it wasn't just drugs because you can't just give, you can't, you can give all the steroids you want to a donkey, that donkey's not going to become secretariat. It was really, what the East Germans perfected is the um, sporting, uh, sports medicine system that we take for granted today, where we're tracking every variable, we're controlling an athlete's diet, their recovery, uh, the development of plateaued training systems where you're pushing athletes to higher levels of performance and then giving them rest periods, all those are really generated by the East German sporting uh, systems. And today we take them for granted.
0: Right. Now, so those are guys like um, uh, Tudor Bumpa and guys like that that came over from when the wall came down that, that basically drew, drew a lot of those training philosophies over to, to the United States into Canada, right?
1: Absolutely. I have a chapter in my book about Charlie Francis, who was uh, Ben Johnson, the Canadian right. runner's coach. And ben jo- uh, Charlie Francis talks about in the 1970s, as a collegiate athlete, being so impressed at how much more organized and systematic the uh, communist states were compared to the Canadians, who were just severely under-budgeted and just kind of winging it even more so than the Americans were.
0: Yeah. Let's back up again and let's talk about how the flip is essentially switched where with horse racing, the negative connotation of doping was because someone would actually infuse some fashion of drug or something to a horse to cause it not to perform. And there was more There was more attitude with that than there was whether you were trying to cause the horse to perform, right?
1: Yes. In fact, the first anti-doping regulation, maybe anywhere in the world that ever hit the books, was in the late 1800s in the United States. Uh, The doping of horses was banned. But horses were doped to make them go slower. So essentially essentially they were poisoning horses. So you would have a, a horse who had very low or very high odds, sort of a ringer, a horse that was going to dominate. And so as an act of subterfuge, what you would do is have a trainer come in or someone else come in and poison that horse when no one was looking. So that, since the horse was doped to slow it down, and then other people would uh, put wagers on horses with uh, higher odds or lower odds of, of winning and they would win more money. So the track associations were very alarmed by this because if people got the notion that the races were rigged, they would stop showing up to to uh, wager on the horses. So they really cracked down on it. In fact, they executed one guy who was caught doping a horse. And that's actually where the term getting the inside dope comes from. Because if you had the inside dope, that meant that you had seen or heard that a horse had been poisoned in advance of the race. And so you had the inside dope that this horse was not going to perform well before, before the race. So, but doping to make a human go faster did not have that same negative connotation because it was assumed that humans are going to do anything they can to win, because particularly as a professional, that's their obligation, um, and you didn't need to poison a human to make them go slower on a bicycle because they could just soft pedal. Or a runner doesn't need to be poisoned to make them go s- slower. They just run slower. So there really wasn't a concern in human athletics that you would poison someone to go f- make them go slower. But if they wanted to dope themselves to go faster, yeah, that's, that's great. It's a better spectacle and a, a faster race. Nothing wrong with that.
0: That was the attitude. Yeah, so I thought it was pretty fascinating how it all came about where with the industrial age and mass manufacturing and people actually riding bikes because it was a a simple form of transportation and it was very, very effective and it was low cost, then it became a situation where people were gathering to watch these multi-day races where I guess they would bet, and they had a gate, and some of these guys would participate in the gate, and clearly they were invested in their performance, so whatever they could do to jack these guys up was was fair game. Um, yeah. And, and so it's kind of contrary these days that, sport being what it is now and the amount of money that's in sport right now, that there's a contrary view in the process of bumping the performance, so to speak.
1: Yeah, well, that – that change also took place at different rates in europe um as i said belgium and france were the first to criminalize doping in 1965. why did france do that france was very concerned that athletes particularly cyclists were being exploited by the race organizers and the team managers because races like the tour de france paris roubaix Liege-Bastogne-Liege, were so incredibly difficult that these riders are having to use drugs in order to finish the race. So the French government said, look, we need to take a paternalistic attitude about this. We need to solve this problem by protecting the riders from exploitation. And so the law really was focused on uh, trainers, medics, and team owners who were caught administering drugs to riders so it was meant to, to punish uh the exploitative or end exploitative system not necessarily to to stop doping amongst amongst the riders meanwhile in the united states we had a much less paternalistic attitudes towards our athletes that's part of the reason why we didn't have an anti-doping system uh, organization until the year 2000 um you know the national football League steroids became a part of uh, football and I have a chapter about football and baseball really became an essential part of an NFL players training program in the 1960s. And that was when football players started to use weight training because up through the forties and fifties, a football player who, who weight trained was really frowned upon because that was a signal that you didn't have the natural capacity to be a football player. It was a very macho thing. But then once they discovered that lifting weights would not bind you, because the concern was that if your muscles got too big, you would get slowed down and be less responsive. Once the medical community found out that that, in fact, wasn't the case, um, they started to use weight training and then also use steroids, which were not banned, by the way, at that time, as a way to accelerate the recovery from these very difficult weight training sessions. But NFL is a Massive business, and they're about creating spectacles, So, and they also have a very strong labor union, as does baseball, and so the notion of the federal government getting involved and asking a football player or a baseball player to be subjected to random searches and ask them to pee in a bottle at 6 in the morning as a pro cyclist has to do 365 days a year, report their whereabouts 365 days a year. That really wasn't going to fly either with the labor unions or with the league whose main objective is to create a successful entertainment business. So that really shows how anti-doping evolved very differently in the United States where we tend to take a more of a laissez-faire attitude towards athlete protection and Europe where it was a much more paternalistic attitude.
0: We talked briefly before we got on about uh, Francisco Mosier setting the uh, the world record for the I guess is the one hour time trial, and it was evident that he was doing a EPO in order to well to make that that performance happen. Was he discredited for that eventually? I mean, do they do they still use him as the yardstick for comparisons co- going forward, or did they just basically discount the fact that because he was drugging? that there was no value in the, in the record. Well, I think that issue of how do you judge
1: an athlete who is using drugs at a time or using blood boosting, which is administering your own blood against athletes today, where those same activities are really frowned upon creates one of the fascinating narrative lines about this whole story. And it's something that Lance Armstrong has said over and over again, uh, that he feels like he was unfairly singled out. He lost to six, seven Tour de France records, but most of the other Tour de France winners who in the past did dope, and there's evidence that they do, still have their, their, um, their wins. So is that fair? I really don't know, but it's it particular it does create an interesting sense of, of tension and you know if, is there, since doping has always been part of professional sports, particularly cycling, is it fair to judge the cyclists in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s who are doping against the cyclists of 2016 who presumably aren't doping as much? I don't know. It's uh, I mean, the same if if most of the guys are using the same dope, same sense drugs, then the playing field is somewhat even. Right. Uh, there's, there's not an easy answer to that, whether or not someone's win is less valuable because they were doping. I mean, the fact is that you're not going to break a world record or win the Twitter France on drugs alone. You could give me all the drugs in the world. And I'm not even going to be able to finish the Twitter France, let, <laughs> let alone win it. So yeah. drugs are only a very small part of something that's, a pyramid that's based on being genetically blessed, having the focus to to pursue a career at that level, to be able to discount all other sort of uh, sense of self-doubt to keep the rest of us down at the amateur level. Whereas a professional says, well, I'm not going to worry about society's expectations. I'm going to completely dedicate myself to this one craft. All those come together to to make a Tour de France champion or or a world champion. It's not just drugs.
0: Well, what about in the absence of the drugs? Do you think that there is a potential these days for someone that is um, uh, proven to be clean? Uh, I mean, I was careful how I said that because who knows how you can do that. But if you're able to to basically show that never in a day did you ever do anything that was outside the guidelines of of fairness in respect to drugs, do you think there's someone that's physically capable of winning or do you think that they need to do drugs in order to win the tour de France?
1: No, I think it's possible to win the tour de France without doping today.
0: Assuming that there are other guys in the field that are doping.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's not just drugs. It's, it's preparation. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's possible. It's, it's certainly, historically speaking, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the history of drugs. It's certainly an unusual occurrence because bike racers have always doped. And then the fact that we're now trying to go into this era of, of chemical and moral purity, and the moral purity is questionable because, particularly in the United States, where we have made it very clear both as voters and through our legislative bodies, that doping is very good and we should do more of it and we should advertise it on television. And, in fact, you should have, as we do today, 6.5% of kids between the age of 4 and 17 on amphetamines to deal with their ADHD issues so that they can perform better in school. As a society, we said doping is really good, except for this subset of athletes that makes that project that much more unlikely and kind of crazy miraculous that it could even progress that's something in the book i interviewed travis tygart who's the uh ceo of us anti-doping and i said your job seems impossible because you're trying to create this island of purity in a pharmaceutically soaked world and he said yeah mark that's that's in fact one of the things that inspires me because he he feels like part of his job is, is creating this little paradise in sport where drugs are not the first line of defense against aging or injury or personal inadequacy.
0: I wanted you to build on the uh, the the comment you made about we're basically in this saturated drug promoting world. What what specifically do you mean about that? I mean, obviously enough. I, I watch TV and every third commercial is, depending on what station you're watching, and apparently people that are watching Fox News have fertility issues and people that are watching CNN have blood disorders. Uh, I don't <laughs> know. But, I mean, is that what you're talking about, basically how they're advertising the use of drugs so commonly?
1: Yeah, and and – No, I'm an American. I was born in in San Diego. And I think it's particularly fascinating in the United States because there's only two countries, the United States and New Zealand, that allow the advertising of pharmaceuticals on television. All the other countries in the world have said, that's not a good idea because the doctor and the pharmacist are the people who understand toxicology. They understand your pathologies and they understand what those potential chemical or other therapies could be to solve your problem. Whereas here, we've said, no, we're gonna let publicly traded drug companies tell people the solution to their problems, and in fact, manufacture problems that they didn't even know existed before, and sell them a drug for that, and then that way the patient can go to the doctor and say, I need that, whether it be for sexual performance, Cialis, whether it be for uh, performance in school or your job with ADHD, and I think ADHD is probably the best example, and I have a, a fairly long analysis of, I have a chapter on amphetamines. So ADHD, attention deficit syndrome, is, a, is something that really started to explode in terms of its diagnosis in the United States in the 1990s and 2000s. And it, and it did that in tandem with uh, efforts to raise the performance of the United States school. So uh, George W. Bush had No Child Left Behind, and then Obama had a, a different program. And both of them were, were had good intentions. It was, like, we're going to hold, we're going to test kids. And we're going to hold teachers and school administrators accountable for the performance of these kids. And if they're not doing well on the test, then we're going to punish them by either shutting down the school or cutting their funding. Sounds good. But what happened is one of the un- unintended consequences was it created an incentive to get disruptive, hyperactive kids, kids who in the past might have just seen, be seen as as – no, rambunctious or fidgety on drugs, because if you have a class of 40 people and there's one super fidgety, disruptive kid, it creates a lot of incentive for the teacher, the parent, and the principal to get that kid on amphetamines, because amphetamines will mellow you out. It's counterintuitive, but that's the effect that amphetamines ha- have on you, and, and, and uh, Adderall is an, a- is an amphetamine. In order to increase the performance of that school overall and its test course. And so there's a lot of research that has documented how we got more kids on amphetamines, the horror drug of cycling, in order to increase the performance of our society.
0: Hmm.
1: Is there anything wrong with that? I don't know. The, the, we still don't know yet what the long term consequences are of having kids on amphetamines. Now they're advertising uh amphetamines for toddlers in preschool, so we don't know what the long term effect of our is of getting a kid an Adderall or Ritalin from the age of three and what is what's going to happen to them when they're forty We don't know yet
0: no that's crazy that's absolutely crazy. you know my son was uh my son was diagnosed as a d h d early on, and you know there was a pediatrician in the office that was very specifically. Um, tooled for that that concern, and offered him up some I think it was Ritalin and uh, I took him off it. I just thought you know what there's nothing wrong with this kid. I mean he he just he just needs to heave too, and we we took him off of it, and he he did fine. it was so I, I don't know I, I, I'm with you though I, I think that uh, in, especially in that regard, that's something that's definitely beat to death and overprescribed. And yeah. I, had, I had no thought of it being a function of the government trying to. Yeah, well, I mean,
1: it wasn't. It wasn't a nefarious thing. The government wasn't saying we got to get kids on speed. The government's intentions were, were noble and praiseworthy. we was saying we need to improve the performance of our failing schools. But one of the unintended consequences was underfunded schools with huge, overpacked classes can really suffer from a disruptive kid. And the ADHD drugs can be life-changing. For kids who have really severe disabilities, those drugs can really change their lives. But what happens, because the drug industry is under constant pressure to expand their market, then they start to market these drugs for kids who are either borderline adhd or people who are simply distracted by their telephones. So now you see advertisements for adult-onset ADHD, where the advertisements say, look, you know, research says if you don't have your ADHD treated, you're X more percent likely to get a divorce, or all sorts of tragic consequences that will take place if you don't get on these, these drugs. Well, you could also say, well, Instead of getting them these drugs, maybe you should go run for half an hour a day. And that's certainly the case for a a kid who, if they went outside and rode their bikes or screwed around in the woods for an hour a day, maybe wouldn't be as hyperactive because they'd be blowing off some energy. But it's easier to to prescribe them a drug than to put together effective exercise programs.
0: So in respect to sport and doping, since you've put so much time into – the whole uh, minutiae of where it evolved from, and and looking at it today, uh, you got to have an opinion whether we should do X or Y in respect to the drug problems. What, what's your take on it? Well, I don't. I don't
1: think we should. I've already received some criticism. People say, "Well, this guy just wants to legalize drugs because all this book is, is is a criticism of the contradictions." Uh, inherent to the history of anti-doping but I don't think that modeling sport after American society which has said yeah drugs are great and we should do more of them uh, is the way to go um, the fact is that we have evolved to a point where sports even sports like football and baseball have said one of the rules in sport is that you can't do certain drugs in don't already practice your sport okay that's the rule that we have the system that we have in place now in order to enforce those rules doesn't work. So the World Anti-Doping Agency in 2013 did a study to, to analyze the f- efficacy of its own policing programs. And really, anti-doping today is, is based on crime, punishment, policing, and constant surveillance. It assumes that athletes are going to dope. And so if you're a pro cyclist, you need to report your whereabouts 365 days a year to WADA. And if you're not where you say you are when the drug tester comes to show up, that's a demerit against you. And if, you're, if that happens three times, then you're positive for, for doing drugs. So it's really a surveillance system. But what WADA found in this research is that they're catching less than 2% of the people who are doping, and if you remove the people who are being testing positive for asthma medicines and marijuana, they're catching less than 1%. So the system today doesn't doesn't work. An alternative to that might be, well, let's just, instead of banning everything, things that are including non-performance enhancers like marijuana, this really shows that you know, anti-doping is as much of, of a moral cause, an a endeavor to impose moral hygiene on athletes as it is an effort to impose health on them, maybe we should just focus on those drugs that are really are destructive, like anabolic steroids, um, like human growth hormones, and focus on cracking down on those drugs rather than, than diminishing our efforts by trying to ban everything. That's one idea that's been floated. Uh, it's just focus on the health side of, of performance-enhancing drugs rather than trying to capture everything. But
0: unfortunately, I don't have an easy answer. Yeah, I was thinking about what you said. It, it doesn't change the dynamic of the approach. It's still a police action. You're still going to have to keep an eye on everybody to make sure they're not doing the anabolic steroids. You're going to have to do blood testing periodically. And the, nothing really changes other than the list is a little shorter.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, if there's... One of the premises of anti-doping is one of the justifications for it is that we need to preserve the health of athletes. The other is that we need to create a level playing field because uh, someone like a Lance Armstrong who has the financial ability to pay for the best doping doctors has an advantage over an athlete from the third world who doesn't have the financial or the connections to, to get the best medicine in the world. So yeah. It is unfair if some athletes have the best drugs and others don't. Um, The other one is to preserve something that's called the spirit of sport, which is really a hangover from Pierre de Coubertin, who was a French aristocrat who created the Olympic Games in 1896. And really the spirit of sport is is a long lingering hangover from Coubertin's effort to create an amateur, a, a place for amateur sport a place that was not welcome to professionals, and it was really for aristocrats who didn't have to work and could therefore uh, spend their days doing whatever sport it was, and it was really seen as a social prophylactic, trying to confront some of the social disruptions that were coming out of, of the Industrial Revolution, but that persists today as this thing called protecting the spirit of sport. even though if you ask someone to define what the spirit of sport is, it's pretty difficult to nail it down.
0: Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, Mark, I, as I told you earlier, I, I was just blown away by the nature of the book. And I think it's an, an incredible read. and Especially if anybody that's... I, I could think of a, a, a lot of people that I know that would be fascinated by the read all by itself. Um, I'm involved with... I coach athletes, and I work with uh, obstacle course racing athletes, which is really kind of a new and fledging and pretty dynamic sport right now where uh, they're suggesting just a few years ago uh, a handful of thousands of people were participating in the sport. Now they're, they're pushing up on 10 to 12 million participants around the world in the sport. They're getting national television, and very soon money is going to chase it, and this is right now the world championship season. And there's no mandatory drug testing in the sport. And that's being bantered around a lot. They're talking about potentially hoping to get a, a, a chance to get a introduction to the Olympics. And so I guess a legitimate sport this, this time and age requires that there's uh, doping mandates involved. And that's kind of sucky too, right? The the idea that you can't be a legitimate sport unless there's drug testing involved.
1: Yeah, and I think that surfing is a good example of that. So surfing is a sport really over the last 20 years, uh, partly because of the effect of social media and web broadcasting that has become a fairly viable way to make a living as a professional. But doping really doesn't help surfers. Because an, an extraordinary surfer is born with the genetic ability. It's it's really a motor skill sport, not an endurance sport. Right. So you could take an average surfer and have them train forty hours a week and they are not going to surf like Kelly Slater. Because mm-hmm. Kelly Slater was born with that capacity. Right. But nonetheless the the surfing administrators a few years back started to do drug testing and it was really more of a public relations thing because they wanted to be seen as a legitimate uh sport professional sport and all the other sports have drug testing so we better start testing for drugs too even though i mean in a pro surfer probably they're going to come up with is cocaine and, and marijuana and not that much anymore because the the sport is so serious that the top-level athletes are very serious athletes, and they're really not doing that many party drugs if they're really serious about about their profession.
0: Right. Well, again, I, I think it's a fascinating read, and I'm glad we finally got a chance to get you on here and successfully get through this without any uh, mishap like we did the first time.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. And it's I mean, it's a fascinating story. It's more than just bad characters named Lance Armstrong or Barry Bonds cheating their way to the top. It's really a, the history of doping in sports is a history of, of a collective endeavor that we're all part of fans, administrators, governments. And I think that's what makes this, this story so fascinating is, is that the forces at play to overlook doping, particularly when you look at the Olympic games are so much Bigger and more powerful than the sports, than the forces that play to, to, that want to clean up, clean drugs out of out of doping. It's almost like anti-doping. The anti-doping cause is a missionary cause that showed up on the shores of an island where the natives have always used drugs to ply their trade, and all the saying, "Well, what you've done in the past." It was acceptable as of today is wrong and evil. And it's not unlike missionaries showing up in Hawaiian islands and saying, all right, you're no longer able to surf and you can't walk around naked. You're going to wear a wool petticoat. And for the natives, it doesn't make any sense. And it's not a change that's going to go down easily or quickly. And so the anti-doping scandals and traumas that we see going on today are really a parallel to the traumas of a missionary endeavor to change the culture of of a society
0: Hmm. yeah well again the name of the book is spitting in the soup highly recommend the read it could be found pretty much anywhere it's put out by velo press and mark thanks a lot i really am glad that i got you back on
1: yeah thanks so much for having me on all right buddy have a great day
0: well friends it's time to bring another show to a close be sure and tune in to us next week we've got a lot of great content in store for you I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.